This is Encounters, a dialogue that brings you multifaceted life stories you don't want to miss. I want to be known as a mover of people. Mover of people. Yeah, I think of myself as a bohemian itinerant set to move people to make a better world. And so that's what I want to be known for. And of course, within move, there's the notion of emotion and making the movement happen through the emotional vortex. So whether it's being an MC, you know, running a show or speaking or writing a book or a white paper or singing a song, whatever it is, I want to be in that mode. And that's what ties everything together for me. I think the nature of the human being is to want to connect with other people. We live in a world where there are a lot of people that are really struggling with mental health issues, and yet we have all these devices to connect, but we've never felt more disconnected with our people. And so what I'm trying to do is, maybe with my gray hair, is to bring sort of an analog plus digital approach to life, except that we have to change because digital is our reality, but also remind us that we are human beings and that we need to connect with ourselves first, with our friends and people important, with strangers, with nature, and embrace the analog side of life as well. Today, it's not at all that. We're in the very beginning of this idea of putting empathy into AI. My injunction is for us as human beings to consider how to be more empathic with one another, with strangers, within our corporation, before we even start to delegate it into AI. Because if you are not empathic as an individual and you want your machine to do the empathy for you, delegate no, no, it, no. it's not going to work. Yeah. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Man Ling. My guest today is Minter Dial. Minter is an internationally known speaker and consultant on brand strategy and digital transformation. He has worked with major global brands, including Google, Samsung, and Chinese tech giant Tencent. Minter is also a filmmaker and the author of three books. Prior to setting up his own ventures, he had a 16-year international career with the L'Oreal Group, which took him on nine different assignments in France, England, the United States, and Canada. In a brief introduction on his personal website, Minter describes himself as an itinerant bohemian in search of experiences and interesting people. For today's program, Minter and I had a good conversation on branding and digitalization. We also discussed the role of empathy in a tech-driven society and how to nurture and sustain it. Stay tuned. Welcome to the studio. Would you please introduce yourself to our listeners? My name is Minter Dial. I am an American citizen. I'm also a French citizen, but I've changed countries 15 times. I try to practice around eight languages. And what I do for a living is I generally speak and write. And the purpose is to move people to make a greater and better world. 
So your job is to encourage people to become a better self, right? And uh, you have so many titles. You are author, consultant, public speaker, right? Yes. And which one you want yourself to be remembered after the show? The most outstanding or the one that you feel comfortable? I want to be known as a mover of people. Mover of people. All these different titles are all serving one similar purpose. I think of myself as a bohemian itinerant set to move people to make a better world. And so that's what I want to be known for. And of course, within move, there's the notion of emotion and making the movement happen through the emotional vortex. So whether it's being an MC, you know, running a show or speaking or writing a book or a white paper or singing a song, whatever it is, I want to be in that mode. And that's what ties everything together for me. Why do you want to move people? I think the nature of the human being is to want to connect with other people. We live in a world where there are a lot of people that are really struggling with mental health issues. And yet we have all these devices to connect, but we've never felt more disconnected with our people. And so what I'm trying to do is maybe with my gray hair is to bring sort of an analog plus digital approach to life, except that we have to change because digital is our reality, but also remind us that we are human beings and that we need to connect with ourselves first, with our friends and people important, with strangers, with nature, and embrace the analog side of life as well. When did you first enjoy it? or realized that you have moved someone and you enjoyed it and you got inspiration from it? That was at a dinner party. It was in Paris, invited by a couple that were about 15 younger than my wife and myself. It was about 20 years ago that they started asking me questions about this story that I've been researching. And at that time, I'd been researching it for something like 10 years. And I started telling them the story of my grandfather. The dinner began at 8 o'clock. And we did not get off the topic until two in the morning. Wow. Overnight. What I felt was embarrassed because I was sort of, you know, center stage and, and, you know, the peacock of the evening. And with my wife, I kept on looking, well, let's change. And But they kept on asking questions. And so to the extent that that was their interrogation, I felt like I was given permission to speak. That was a, a very revealing moment for me, is that you can tell stories that move people and get people to cry and be vulnerable in a public environment. We don't have a lot of that opportunity today. But after moving, like you said, you have moved them into tears. What did they get? Everyone's going to have their own interpretation of that. The notion of opening up these chakras is to welcome them to think about things differently. If I see a lot of people not expressing emotions or expressing emotions after I tell them, I do think there is one thing that we all struggle with, which is a lot of hollowness in our lives. There's a big emptiness. People are running and doing a lot of things, but they're not being who they want to be. Disoriented. They're disoriented. They feel like there's too much choice. They also feel like they're the victim of everything that's happening to them. There's, you know, a million messages coming in. I've got to do this. I've got to perform there. I've got to earn this money. And what I see sometimes is that people will attach meaningfulness to my story. And that's the gift that they're having. They're having this moment where they're connecting with themselves. I'm not suggesting everybody needs to cry, but it's not a bad idea to be able to connect with something within you because we don't give ourselves a lot of time for that. So it's about being present. And have you ever been touched by many other oh my other goodness. stories? Well, sure. Can you give me an example? Well, uh, you know, it's like Bambi. 
Disney film about this deer that gets shot by, and you know, the, the suffering child. I, I remember weeping miserably about that. And then the question is, well, why was I weeping about that? Inevitably, there's sort of the typical human issues of fears of death and separation, which are generic. And then there's the issue of the specific fears you might have had and separations that you might have felt. And the narrative that I could run as a 55-year-old today is, well, I'm thinking about the separation that my father had with his father, and that that came through genetically through that particular film. Is it for sure? Is it an explicit element of my life and reaction? I don't know. But that can be the narrative. And then you say, well, maybe this is something I need to work on. Does um, knowing many other people's stories help to overcome this kind of fear? Well, I followed a rock and roll band for 10 years of my life called The Grateful Dead. And the, not, the notion of The Grateful Dead is, going back to their roots, was once you can appreciate that you will die, you embrace that fact, then you will be much more grateful within the life that you have to Cherish. lead the life you want. And so I, I, you can do it through music. But in the case of literature, this is about being more empathic. And one of the things that I think we could do more of is have more empathy, empathy with yourselves and more empathy with others. If we have so much struggle in our world today, it's a lot of inability or lack of desire to spend time on listening to someone else's story. So to your point, does listening to someone else's story help you? Well, it does if you're listening. But I mean by that listening deeply, because... You know, someone else's story, they, oh, they might say yada, 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 you know, I have another boo-boo. And, and too just, superficial. Too right? superficial. And, and you're like, well, oh, God, another time. Oh, boy, he's always complaining. But sometimes if you listen deeply, maybe there's something within you. Why aren't you listening? What are you not listening to about yourself? You are comfortable in the name of or shoes of a great public speaker, right? Yes, I am. I'm okay. And then shoes. go back to, because you served in L'Oreal for 16 years. There's something special about you that they cannot do without? Oh, well, I, I certainly don't want to profess that. I, I tried to bring to L'Oreal a different perspective, a different way of being. And yet what I wanted to do was provide a different type of thinking within that. So, so before you and after you, what are the differences for this company? Well, <laughs> oh, I don't think I had that big an what impact. What did you contribute? Well, my main contribution, in my opinion, would have been how I managed one brand that I ran for them for nearly four years out of New York called Redken. For me, it was probably my defining experience within L'Oreal. And it certainly is the one that I enjoyed 100%. I also, I mean, obviously I enjoyed many of the other stints I did and specifically working in China, uh, sorry, in Canada. <laughs> I very much enjoyed that. But what I did there with Redken was really discover at the time of September 11, what was important about the business that I was doing. And my offices at the time overlooked the Twin Towers. I saw the second airplane fly all the way down New York into the Southern Tower. Four friends are killed. And I realized that I had to be do, do more than just selling shampoos. Mm -hmm. And so I really wanted to contribute to that conversation within L'Oreal about this notion about being meaningful in, in what you're doing, making sure that your purpose is beyond just making money for shareholders. And that's something that I felt I carried. I certainly wasn't the founder of it. But that's the mission that I felt. And I was very much inspired to do that. And I really felt that my mission was beyond just running the company. It was to do something important. 
And then when did you come to China? The first time I ever came to China was in 2013. It was the beginning of the year. 2013. What did you see? So I was in, in Beijing. Sh- I, well, I was actually no, no, no. I, the first time and the second time only came to Shanghai. So oh, this is my first time this in Beijing. In Beijing. Okay. I, as an entrepreneur, I I took advantage of meeting some interesting startups, some agencies to understand how marketing is evolving in this country. People working on different digital technologies at the time, and of course, I was employed for that specific time by Tencent to come in. And what were you told to explore for them? Well, I did two things for them. In fact,、uh, the first was I, I spent the morning animating a roundtable with senior executives that were clients of Tencent, talking to them about the future of marketing and future of branding, not just the digital components to it, but how does one create a great brand with digital as well as analog. The second thing I did was in the afternoon, I spent time with. Something like sixty、uh, digital marketers, and tried to give them a north star to the way that they should select the different digital tools that were available to them to drive their business and help them with that. What my viewpoint was to show how it's happening in the West. My specificity, the value add, is that I know boardrooms of major organizations and great marketing organizations from the West. And what I wanted to do was sort of bring that in in an interpretive manner, to to show this is how you can do differently than what you're doing. I'm not going to suggest that what you're doing is doing poorly、so、or wrong, but just a difference. So it's like、uh, bridging and sharing. That's right, exactly. And what did you discover? Well, so I, 2013. That's, that's right. When I came back to at、uh, the time I was in London. I wrote down a, a memorandum to myself of my observation. Yeah, observation. And a number of things came out which said, "Whoa, you know, you guys, they are the Chinese are doing some amazing things." So on the one hand, I was absolutely flummoxed by the already prolific amount of use of the mobile, the fact that the Chinese ecosystem of mobile is immediately and directly linked to the payment model. As opposed to the Western world, which is immediately linked to your email, and that just absolutely culturally dictates the way that you're going to do things differently.、Why、and that's、you? your observation. That's, it's、um, a progress in your eyes. Well, it's ahead of time. Yeah, oh yes, I think it's an absolute advantage. You can just see that by the way that now the cities are operating and how how much more advanced people are comfortably using mobile payments.、Uh, you know, I just see it everywhere. We don't use cash anymore. No, it's absolutely not. And they're trying to catch back up in the other countries and other cities because this is a, that's more at a citizen type level where you see how it's absolutely integrated. Second, But since we are ahead, yeah, what can we learn? Well, what I was trying to bring was more of this notion, and I don't want to say it and then say, "Well, you don't have it here." But it's more humanity to the brand. So what I see is a tremendous level of efficiency and a tremendous drive for performance. Yet, what I think brand is or will be in the future is all about people. And as much as we have all these digital tools, you have many people in the organization who are participating in making your brand come alive. You are trying to bring in the humanity part of、yeah. service. How? Well, lots of things. First of all, know why you're in the business, and if you're in the business, you mean the employees? 
directors of the company at this, this They're from point. top down. Yeah, I top mean, from down. CEO right. number one to the very grassroots. Yeah. You try to tell them that you should be part of the branding. Absolutely. You know, whether you're in finance or an engineer or someone in the front row, you all need to sort of sing from the same song sheet. And so as the top down, you need to be telling the story of the brand. What is the story you want to tell them? If the story is we're here to make 10% growth every year or we're here to make the world a better place. So general way we used to talk about the tailorism, this notion of getting more productivity, more efficiency, and, and surely we need to continue to be you know, doing as best you can to get the fat out of the company, fine. But I feel like we're in a new situation. We have a lot of new ways to do business, especially for the bigger companies. It's going to be hard to keep talent in your company. So there's a very pragmatic notion to this. This is not like being Pooh Bear and being nice to everybody. There's some really necessary reasons for this to make your business successful. So you really need to find ways to attract great talent. And if you have a project and a purpose that's bigger, you're going to probably attract people who are prepared to give more discretionary energy to your company. 70% of people in companies today are not engaged with their employer. That means that they are dragging their feet when they come into the office. They're not like jumping up and you need to find ways to ignite them. They're not machines, right? They are not. They are human beings. Absolutely. Right? And, and plus they're connecting with people. And, and if you don't have that energy, you don't feel it, you immediately see it. Communication is the lifeblood of the company. Digital technologies can completely change the way we communicate. And how are we communicating? Are we adapting? And then, of course, you've got new generations issues, which may not be any greater than any other past generations, but they are their issues and, and worried about you know, the environment or worried about terrorism or worried about economic woes. These are legitimate issues. And so we've got these people who are considered you know, really nervous and have fears. And if you are just saying we're a great company, a great place to work, but we're not doing it, we're not making it happen, then you fall down and you get shown up. In today's world where things are being more transparent, people will because of the technology call, call it out and say, you, you say you do that, but look, you don't. Yes. No one does not like humanity. But by preaching humanity, do you think this is the way out for the quackmire that all the big companies are now in. No, so I think that there are... Or the AI world that we are facing. All right, so there, there is no blanket answer to that. Let's say some people will just prefer to be told what to do, go to the factory... Follow. And follow. Mm. And that's the purpose of their lives, and they're satisfied with that. And I'm not going to change those guys or those people. Then others who find that they're unsatisfied, well, these people may... The thinking animals. Yeah, they're thinking animals, but they may be feeling things like, well, I'm not satisfied in my work. It might be useful just to give them a project and tell them why this project is important for the company, and that's satisfactory. So by doing so, you're motivating this group of people. Right, and they're different. And they're different needs as we go along in our lives. And what is meaningful for people is not the same for everybody, of course. And so the challenge as an organization as you get bigger is tapping into the meaningfulness of the different people. You have different parties you're trying to motivate. I think what I'm trying to do on the one hand is suggest that purpose is the biggest motivator. And purpose means beyond your immediate boundaries. So that the bigger the purpose, the more outside of your ecosystem it is. And um, from 2013 until now, have you been successful in encouraging certain 
group of people in Tencent to use more humanistic way of doing business? The answer to that is I'm sure not. I, I, you know, no? Frank, no, because I was only there, you know, had these two days with Tencent in Shanghai back in 2013. And I hope I had impact at that day. Afterwards, it's, you know, like you tell a story and you have a group of people and, and maybe some of them will remember six months long. And, and that's as much as I can hope for in a speaking engagement. I try different media to impact people. So I, I've done film, I've written books. And so I'm trying to accommodate the different types of people out there in mm -hmm. moving them. Do I have a lasting impact? I feel like I would be arrogant to suggest that I have a lasting impact. That's for them to say whether they do or didn't. But now you're still being employed by Tencent? Nope, this time I'm That's being, only the once, right? That was the one time. And yeah. what about now? This, this so, time, what sort of business? So I'm employed by a cosmetics company and I'm working on them for their Asia Pacific company on their digital transformation. Yeah. So how can they integrate digital into their strategy to make their business run better? Why digitalization is such an urgent matter? Well, it's so much more than just the technology. It's all about mindset. And it's just hard to change your mind. Not only does it change our lives, it, it needs a different way of operating by Even our mind. thinking. That's right. And it is challenging our value system. It is. In 100%. what ways? Well, communication is really one of the areas I like to focus on. It used to be okay just to say, you know, do it. Well, you've got these people who have been brought up to say, well, why do I have to do this? Because maybe I could work for somebody else. I could start up my own company. I can just start and do an app. It's easy. I can do it from home. And people started being inquisitive. Why, Papa, did you work for this company for 30 years? Well, son, that's just the way it was done back in my time. Well, were you happy? Well, son, we didn't ask ourselves those questions. And so now we get in a situation where actually the fathers who have been asked this question, well, son, you're actually right to ask me these questions. This is a good idea. And so that change is, is kind of an earthquake for everybody. So a lot of even older people are saying, well, why on earth am I working here? And they feel unhappy. So as a, a leader of a company, you need to be thinking about how to engage, ignite people. But don't right you away. think why and how and these questions are supposed to for us to ask ourselves? They certainly are. And the employees are asking the employer why I'm working here. That's right. Well, I mean, so we're in a, in a motion. If you started in a company, there is a legacy situation going on. So you have to work within that. Ideally, people are thinking more about who they are and why they're working for an organization. And where is the overlap between what my company is about why it exists and who am I and why I exist. It's so interesting that human history has gone so many milling, you know, thousands of years and all of a sudden that at this time of history, we all started to ask, who am I? What am I going to do? Mm. You know, all sorts of these questions. Don't you think it's, it's a strange thing that we lack motivation in doing things? Mm. Why? The way I'm going to answer that, Sanyang, is to think more about the situation we have today, which is we have a lot of unhappy people. Why people are many, unhappy? Well, many. it seems that depression has risen heavily across the world. Yeah. And as much as we have so many ways to connect, people are also now aware that they're not happy doing what they're doing. They're, we're asking the why. And sometimes asking the why is not a good thing. It can cause pain. By following, it's much, much easier. Yeah, sometimes you're like, yes, sir, I, I'll follow it. And yeah. it's true. So 
my issue or what I'm trying to do, I really, when I wrote Artificial Empathy, the injunction wasn't just to do better AI. It was to return empathy into the present, into our daily lives. So it was my, the motif was artificial intelligence, but my desire was to bring back empathy into our world. So empathy for the self and empathy for the people around you. When did we lose this empathy? Well, it seems that, let's say, I have one statistic, which is, is awfully telling. In the United States, 40,000 students were asked in the question in 1980, and then in 2010, 40,000 students in universities. The same number of people. Were asked the same question. And the question is, to what extent that they believe that they're empathic, they themselves are empathic. And the students in 2010 rated themselves as being 40% less empathic than their the generation of 1980. So in the space of 30 years, empathy has come down at a massive. So why are we being less empathic? Well, I think on the one hand, we are given so many choices, so many devices, so many things to do, changing at such fast speed, we are disconnected. We are discombobulated by the amount of choices we have. And we're fretting for the future. We got all these worries about sustainable development and whether the planet's gonna go up in flames. We're worried about terrorism, the economic issues, and and we're not being present enough, giving ourselves the time to listen to ourselves and to others. And so it, sometimes it's the devices, sometimes it's the awareness, sometimes it's the context we're living in. And so it's, it's a complex and messy situation. Yes, you are trying to bring this empathy back to people, right? You said um, in your books, empathy can be learned but cannot be taught. That's right. That's Can true. you explain a little bit? So there are two types of empathy. One of them is cognitive. And the other one, one is, is affective. Fe affective or feeling empathy. Mm. And of the two, you don't learn or teach feeling empathy. It's a very personal sphere. What is more teachable or learnable is cognitive empathy, where you understand the other person's thinking and your situation. Uh, I why you are unhappy. I don't feel your feeling. If you're, this is the difference. Okay. You're crying. I'm going to want to cry. That's effective. Uh -huh. I feel your pain and I want to cry with you. Yeah. Another one. You're crying because you have a doll on your side of you that's broken. I'm not going to cry, but I understand that probably the reason why you're crying is your favorite doll is broken on the side. Now that I understand that, I'm in a better position to, to interact help you. with you. Bring you a new one, right? <laughs> For example. <laughs> and by the way, the, the different answers to that, you could call it compassion or different things, but mm -hmm. there are many different ways. And you may not be looking for me to bring a new doll. All you want to do is tell me my doll's broken. Or and maybe want, some sort of a hug. Or, I mean, you may want a hug, but yeah. you know, don't assume that that's the answer. You might want a hug, but the other person might not. So mm -hmm. you need to have that inquisitive mind, listening skills, to understand that strangers have different thoughts than you do, different feelings than you do, and prepare yourself to try to gently understand what the other person is doing or feeling. And at that point, you can maybe suggest some, some ideas, but men particularly always like to suggest the solution immediately. Oh, your doll's broken. Let me fix it. <laughs> no, don't touch my doll. I just want to tell you about how sad I am about this doll and the memories that I have with the doll. Mm -hmm. And that's what you might want to tell me. They're not looking for an answer, They're right? not. They may not be looking for an answer. So mm -hmm. practice thinking different things. And that's cognitive empathy. So back to the point, this is something that can make you think differently about the way you approach somebody. So whereas I'm not asking you to cry if someone else cries, 
what I am doing is by telling you that story, think, well, if you are faced with somebody who's got an emotion that you're not aware or understanding of, ask questions, observe, and then gently go in. Don't assume that you know the answer. Thinking in the shoes of the others. Exactly. But there are people, some argument out there. One day I met someone who told me that there's no way that you can think in the shoes of the others. What's your take? Well, so let's say that as we go forward, part of it is the context in which you are experiencing your emotion. And you may not be able to understand why you're having this and, and the relationship it has with your past has provoked this emotion. Because sometimes it's deep tissue material and this scene that you've seen in a film made you cry. You know, oh, I see you're crying, you've seen the film, but that's not enough. There's deeper stuff that goes behind it. So you need to gather data and, you know, with a stranger, maybe he has just asked some questions, talk with them. And you, over time, you will generate a better empathic feeling. The other person might feel that you're being empathic as opposed to sort of pushing on you my assumption or my presumption that you need some solution. Capturing context is the key thing. So context means the language you're using, the metaphors and figures of speech you're using. There's the history you're bringing to it. It's all this data that allows you to understand the other person, which is why I brought up in the artificial intelligence story. Because whereas you and I are developing a relationship, I'm beginning to get a little bit of a feeling and vice versa with me. So we have a little bit more than with a stranger. But that's just the beginning of the data collection. AI has almost innumerable and huge volumes of space and memory mm -hmm. to collect all the data. So there's going to be an opportunity for AI to sometimes do better than us as human beings with You others. mean AI has this capacity to collect all the data. So we are talking about when someone told me that you could never understand another human being because you are not him or her. Right. My understanding later is that after data collecting, either by machine or by ourselves, try to get to know somebody better, the overlapping part of understanding will increase. Absolutely. And the uh, misunderstanding will be narrowed down. Yeah. And then you are telling me that because of the data and the capacity of AI, do you think one day that a machine, a robot, can understand you and me completely? No, I don't think one day, no. We're very complex and messy people. And so... We create new problems. <laughs> we do. We have great ways every day. <laughs> this is the idea, is that actually I believe that AI will be able to perform better than some individuals. Some. Right. Majority? I don't know. Maybe. But <laughs> at some level, what is being empathic is a perception. Do you feel that this machine mentor talking to you is being empathic with you? Is a perception that you're going to have. It's not something I'm, in, I'm giving out to you. What I'm doing is understanding you. And machine might be able to listen for a long time if you just feel like wanting to talk. A machine might be able to understand that that is a dialect from the northern China as opposed to southern China and make the difference in the way and understand the vocabulary and the jargon and the jokes and the history and the so on, which you can't possibly know for the sum total of all the history of every country of every world. So machines could potentially bring more of that together when uh, looking at certain individuals. Today, it's not at all that. We're in the very beginning of this idea of putting empathy into AI. My injunction is for us as human beings to consider how to be more empathic with one another, with strangers, within our corporation, before we even start to delegate it into AI. Because if you are not empathic as an individual and you want your machine to do the empathy for you, delegate no, no, it, no. it's not going to work. Yeah. 
Minter says, empathy helps a person feel what it's like in someone else's shoes. In our digital infused world, it has become an immensely important and valuable skill, not only for success in business, but also in our life. In the next episode, Minter will share with us the miraculous journey of the lost ring of his late grandfather. And that's the end of our show. I'm Manling. Thank you for joining us. Please rate us because the more stars we get, the easier it is for other people to find the show. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.